Welcome to Book Rising, a podcast by the Radical Books Collective. All right. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome back to Book Rising and to the Radical Publishing Futures series here at the Radical Books Collective. I'm Meg Ehrenberg, your host. And today I'm here to talk with Nadine Alhadi, Senior Acquisitions Editor for Hoopo Press, based in Cairo. Hupo was created in 2016 as an imprint of the American University in Cairo Press, focused particularly on contemporary fiction from across the Arabic-speaking worlds. AUC Press has long been a home of Arabic literature and English translation and books about the Middle East, and has published such towering figures as Nobel laureate Naguib Mahfouz, Palestinian novelist Sahar Khalife, and Libyan novelist Ibrahim Alkoni. Um, Nadine, welcome to Book Rising. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I think before we we dive into talking about publishing, I just I want to acknowledge um, that this has been an utterly devastating uh, last month in the region, um, and that as we speak, the unprecedentedly brutal Israeli bombardment of Gaza continues. Um, I know many of us who have been following these events closely are exhausted with grief and with shock. Um, it's hard to think of much else. And I know um, located in Egypt, you're, you're particularly close to the conflict. Um, so I just thought maybe I would start by asking how you are, um, how things are feeling right now in Cairo under the circumstances. Um, yeah, well, I mean, thank you for, for bringing this up and for starting with it. I think it is hard to really think about anything else without thinking about Palestine and Gaza at the moment in this horrendous, terrible month of carnage that we've all been witnessing. Um, I mean, we are kind of geographically very close to it, as you said, um, but also, you know, removed. We, we watch it like everyone else with increasing horror unfolding on the TV every day. Um, for me, um, it's been, yeah, it, I mean, for me, I don't have a personal connection to Gaza. I'm not from Gaza, but like everyone, everyone knows someone who has family there or who has been there. And so there's a kind of once removed connection and, you know, just on a human level, of course, it's just unbearable to watch um, the, ons the onslaught that is being unleashed on the population there. And um, I think as someone who grew up in the West as well, I grew up in London, um, it's just um, also, I mean, shocking, but not shocking to kind of watch the Western complicity, the media and governments in um, in the Israeli attacks. It's just, yeah, it's just, it's hard to, it's hard to get your head around, even when you expect it, it always is really, um, really shocking. Um, yeah. And yes, we stand in solidarity with Gaza and Palestine. Yeah. I think I, I feel very similarly as an American currently living in the Middle East, even somewhat more more removed than you are, and maybe perhaps even more so as an American with with Jewish heritage. Um, I have no, uh, you know, delusions or naivete about what what America's support has been for for the Israeli government, you know, throughout um, decades of of brutality. But somehow, um, I. 
the the shock of the the um, unreserved supports, um, uh, and also the way that the the um, the Western media has been reporting. I mean, I think you know, in this era of of social media, we we have a lot of other sources. Um, of information, um, we have witnessed in a way that uh, has been difficult in previous in previous decades. And I think um, I don't know. I, I I think thinking about Hupo uh, and reading reading your um, your mission statement as a press. I think under under the circumstances that even the language that you use of challenging headlines, of reimagining histories, of um, Kind of reframing a, a narrative which we're seeing in front of us has so much power right that that perpetuated in so many ways that the urgency of that mission um takes on particular uh gravity uh, i think in this in this moment yeah absolutely i mean it's something really important to us that we are we do publish in english we're an english language publisher but we do publish from the middle east um and we're a little bit different in that sense to lots of other publishers who publish uh, Arabic writers, Arab writers in translation or not. Um, but because we publish from, from Cairo, we publish from a, a hub of uh, Arab literary production. Um, we have a degree, I think we have a, we have a certainly a different perspective, uh, a different degree of maybe access to writers writing from this region. Um, I hope it gives us a kind of level of authenticity as well that um, we are an Egyptian press, we're the American University, but we're also uh, an Egyptian press. Most of our staff are based in Cairo. Um, and it is, as you say, you know, more than ever uh, important to provide an alternative narrative um, to the one that is peddled by kind of big mainstream Western news organizations and media. Um, yeah. Um... Maybe maybe you could tell us, I mean, I want to ask you more actually about that specific location in Egypt and what that means for your readership and your distribution and so forth. But maybe we could start just by talking a little bit about how the press came to be and maybe specifically, yeah. um, I mean, you could talk about um, AUC press more generally, but, but you know, what distinguishes the books that Hupo publishes from the other titles at the press and, and what was the impetus behind starting this, um, this separate imprint? Um, well, Hupo obviously were an imprint of, of AUC Press of the American University in Cairo Press and uh, AUC Press has been publishing Arabic literature and translation for, for years, for decades really. So, really before many others were doing it. And as you mentioned in your introduction, we published Migi Mahfouz, the Nobel Laureate, and all the kind of greats of Arabic literature. Mm. Um, so when Hupu was um, founded, we're really building on this legacy, on this background, on this experience, and this backlist as well of, of um, publishing, of being a pioneer in this field, really. Um, and so, when we when we launched in 2016, the idea was to separate our fiction from our non-fiction academic lists. Because as, as an academic press, obviously we publish uh, we publish Middle East studies, we publish Arabic language learning, we publish um, travel books and tourist books for the local market. So we have quite a, a large kind of array of um, non-fiction titles. Right. Um, 
The idea was to give the fiction its own identity, to really um, put it apart from the nonfiction. Um, and so we have our own website, its own social media channels, tailored publicity, uh, all the things that are needed to kind of help it kind of really, um, to use the hoopoo metaphor, kind of fly on its own. Um, and in terms of the timing, I think, um, I think there has, there was a feeling that there is um, kind of a rising interest in Arab literature, Arab writing, perhaps post-Arab spring, but I think also more generally um, a greater openness to reading kind of non-Anglophone uh, translated fiction. Uh, and there have been other smaller presses or small presses who've also been publishing translated fiction with great success as well. Um, so this was a very kind of positive sign for us. Um, there's also been more visibility of uh, these prestigious prizes like the IPAF, the International Prize for Arabic Fiction, which is covered in Western press as well. Um, the recognition of what was the Man Book International Prize, the recognition of the translator as well in that prize. Um, so we just felt there was a kind of a feeling that there was a growing acceptance um, for translated fiction, for non-Anglophone writing. Yeah. Um, so there's this kind of community of readers who might be interested in things a little bit maybe off the mainstream. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And is there, I mean, you mentioned the metaphor, the flying <laughs> metaphor, but is there significance to the, to the name, Hupo? Uh, I, I, I've always known it as hoopoe, but I hear you saying hoopoe, so maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah, no one's quite sure how to pronounce it. Hoopoe. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, well, it's just, I mean, it's a bird that's, that you commonly find in, in Egypt. I always have them in my garden, actually. Um, Even here in Sharjah, you know, you see them along the Corniche sometimes. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's a Middle Eastern bird. I mean, that's the thing. It's, um, I mean, the, the cheesy metaphor about flying is not, is not part of the... <laughs> Official Hooper story. But, um, no, it's just like a nice kind of, we just thought it's a nice symbol of, you know, a, a beautiful bird from this region, basically. I, I yeah, I, I was going to take it in another direction and ask you whether it was a kind of counterpoint to, to penguin, but, uh, <laughs> but. I mean, not, not on purpose, no. Yes. <laughs> um, no, but you do see them here. I think they're actually, um, there, there are hoopoes in, in across Africa as well. Um, yes, so it's, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> a nice yeah. link. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, Egypt, you know, geographically providing that, uh, that link between yeah, continents. Exactly, yeah. 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 Um, okay, well, maybe I'll come back to, to my, my question earlier about, um, about your readership. Um, and particularly yeah. since you mentioned, you know, it, it the, the significance of being located in in Cairo, um, yeah. and uh, you know whether you're when you're envisioning who who your readership is, if you're marketing to a kind of global anglophone yeah. uh, world, if you're working in some ways to build an English readership in Egypt and other parts of of the region, um, yeah. is there kind of politics to that to that choice? If that, what are the dynamics of publishing in English in in the Arabic speaking world? I mean, I wouldn't say that it's necessary. I mean, everything is political, obviously. Right. Course, but yeah. I mean, yeah. 
them. <laughs> but I mean, in, in some ways, we're maybe a bit protected because we publish in English. So, mm. um, you know, we're, we're not the language, we're not the kind of majority language. And we also, um, you know, we're global publishers. So the local market is, of course, an important key market for us. But, you know, we also publish in the US and in, in Europe. We um, we have sales and distribution teams in based in the UK and the US. We print in four different continents. So we're we're very much a kind of global publisher. Yes. So I think mm-hmm. our readership is is global. Um, it's because we publish in English as well. That's kind of the almost like a lingua franca of the kind of global language. Yes. Yeah. Um, for better in, or worse. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For better or worse. Um, but in terms of our readership, I think um, in very general terms, we publish literary fiction, which is you know quite a big umbrella. Uh, we publish for readers who are interested in the Middle East. Um, in whatever various forms that may come in, uh, perhaps looking for a different perspective. Um, but I think in turn, you know, the, our books are quite diverse. And so the readership for any given book, the starting point really is the book itself. Mm-hmm. So you know, the author, the setting, the type of book it is, that's always the jumping off point. Um, and we do have, you know, some sometimes we publish established authors like like Ibrahim Al-Kourni that you mentioned mm-hmm, in your mm-hmm. introduction, uh, who's a Libyan writer who has published dozens of books, translated into almost every language that's spoken and won many awards. And uh, so he's obviously kind of a household name. He's well known. But we also publish debut novelists, mm-hmm. be it a debut novel or a debut in English. Um, so then you're looking to kind of build a readership for um for a new author and as I said it's always the book is always the starting point of that and then we will um you know reach out to 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 kind of cultivate and build on relationships with uh, bloggers and independent media and non-independent media as well mainstream too and booksellers who may have a particular interest in literature and translation writing from this region um but yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's an interesting process. Every book is is quite different, really. Yeah, um, I um, I wanted to ask you as well about sort of um, maybe on that individual level of of each book, what what that journey typically looks like in terms of um, how how the book comes into being, how you, how the um, how yeah. the title is identified. I think you know. As a translator myself, I'm always um, I'm aware of how little attention translations get, particularly in the Anglo-American book market. Um, um, so I'm excited about publishers that focus particularly on translation, but I'm also aware of the sort of um, additional, sometimes expensive steps in the in the publishing process that this adds, um, and and potentially additional risk. Um, so I, I'm curious to hear, you know, how are you taking pitches from translators, for instance? Are you, um, I'm sure you're reading also extensively um, uh, new work in Arabic and and looking for titles that way. But are you, do you have established relationships with with presses that are pr- publishing primarily in Arabic? How does the, how does the early part of the process start with the, with an author? Um, well, yeah, I mean, we do take submissions and we have a network of, publishers and agents and translators, writers that we are in regular communication with about new projects, um, be that people pitching to us, us finding something that we're interested in, interested in and going out um, and kind of 
exploring it, looking for a translator. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes we find a book that and then we will find a translator. Sometimes a translator will bring us a project. So right, I mean, right. there are many, many different ways in which a new project comes to us. Um, and because the majority of what we publish is translated from Arabic, we do publish original English writing and translations right. from other languages right. as well. Mm -hmm. um, but we have to be very selective. Um, yeah. We are very selective. There's, if you think about the number of books published in Arabic across the region every year, it's yes. a yes. huge volume of books. Yes. Yes. We publish a, a, like not even a fraction of, <laughs> of, those, <laughs> of those number of books. Um, and so we think, you know, we think really hard about a book before we sign it up. Um, and, you know, we think, is, is this book going to find a, a market, an audience in English? Is it is it the right book for us? Does it fit? You know, we only publish novels. We don't publish, for example, short stories. We only publish within this broad umbrella of literary fiction. Um, and, you know, we do, we definitely do look at the local market and we look at books um, that may have done well in Arabic. Um, and that is, um, it doesn't necessarily equate to an English audience mm -hmm. um, but it is instructive it is definitely a useful measure for us and something that we will kind of take into account um, and we have you know Arabic publishers who would recommend books and you know what their best sellers are this 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 kind of process is also um, very useful um, but it is interesting I mean you will know about this as a translator the, the process of translating something and whether it will kind of I don't say work but you yeah. know what it will turn into when you put it into another language because I think often when you're translating from Arabic to English you're you're translating the story but there's a whole you know context that you're yes. moving from one culture into another and all the kind of cultural assumptions that you don't need to be explained for an original audience that you then have to uh well translate as well into into a, into a novel in another language I it's, I'm not a translator myself, but it's a very mm -hmm. interesting process, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think as a result of that, I mean, you do, I mean, and I think sometimes you have in some languages that are um, regularly translated into English. I don't know how much this happens with, with Arabic. Maybe you can say um, because there's such a large um, Arabic language mark its own, you know, it's its its own worlds, um, so to speak. But I do think you sometimes see in some languages a kind of writing to translation, you know, that that, that in the originals there's a kind of thinking of how does this end yeah. up um, in English. But it is definitely true that some some books some books are are uh, are are more readily moved into um, into another language yeah. than others. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think anything can be translated. Yes, I mean, of course. Yeah. Things that are harder to translate. I think maybe humor is particularly difficult to translate. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe language that is very poetic, where the novel is all about the language. It can, you know, maybe that would work less well in translation, not necessarily. Um, sometimes where you have a novel set, uh, in, an, in a Western country that then if you turn that on its head and give it back to a Western audience, it doesn't maybe quite fit. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but I think, yeah, I think a good translator can translate. Anything can be translated, really. It's just it's an interesting process. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
I was going to ask you again, back to the sort of questions of, of language and your, your readership, whether you have readers in Cairo reading translation. So reading, reading books that they can access the original in, you know, I always think it's interesting the way a translation is consumed um, yeah. by someone who can't read the original versus by someone who might know the work um, in the original language or be able to make a comparison. I wonder if you get, ever get feedback from readers who have, um, you know, favorite authors in, in Arabic who, uh, who are then reading them for the first time in English translation through your publications. I mean, I don't know the extent to which people read them in both, actually. This I'm not sure about, but I know there is there is a readership who would choose to read the English over the Arabic here. Mm. Um, the next pack community but there's also um many egyptians who would have been educated not in arabic right um, and there's difference between the spoken language so you may speak arabic as a first language egyptian arabic uh but then you may have been educated in french or in german or in english so yes actually right. your you your written english is better than your uh, written Arabic so it's easier for you to read the novel in in translation so there's also that kind of market for us here um, obviously like I said the primary market the bigger market anyway is outside of Egypt but it is an important market for us here we mm -hmm, do, mm -hmm. you know, if we have an Egyptian author who's well known here we would expect to, to do well with him in Egypt amongst Egyptians um, Right. But the extent that people are reading both, um, uh, this I don't know about, okay. actually. I, yeah. I feel possibly not, actually. Mm. Uh, it's more, it's a slightly distinct market, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm, yeah, maybe I'm, as a scholar yeah. of translation, I'm just particularly interested in, yeah. in those kinds Probably of Probably there were translators who were reading both. Yes, exactly. yeah. <laughs> um, Very niche market of translators. I wonder, given um, Hupo's start in... Uh, in 2016, kind of in the um, in the heart of, or really after the real digital turn in publishing, um, how you would describe the balance in your at your publishing house between digital and print publishing, um, and whether or not the the pandemic, for instance. I mean, a lot of the publishers that we've talked about talked to in this series have talked about that moment as a real shift for them um, in that in that balance. Um, how you've faced any challenges uh, related to, to digital publishing? Yeah, I mean, I think I would agree that the pandemic was a, a kind of a turning point where um, we publish uh, print and ebook simultaneously um, for our fiction. And that's when it became routine, really. Um, so everything is now simultaneously uh, e mm -hmm. and print. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously it makes it seamless for our books to be available across the world if they can be available in e-edition don't have to you know bypasses the logistics and any difficulties of physically printing and distributing actual hard copy into different regions um so i think it has it definitely um helps with questions of access and accessibility mm -hmm. I wonder if I could ask you about another question that we've sort of been asking everyone in this series is about the the kind of influence um, of huge publishing conglomerates, corporate booksellers like like Amazon, um, and whether um, in your experience for for Hoopo they've been uh, a challenge. Um, whether you have an opinion yourself on what 
would have to change in terms of the um, the global market, the the share um, that companies like that have in global bookselling um, for independent and non-corporate publishing to really thrive? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the short answer is that we engage with these big um, kind of conglomerates like Amazon, as everyone does, we sell through them. Yes. Uh, like we engage in it like we would any other retail chain. And of, yes. of course, a huge company like Amazon, they um, carry all our titles all the time. Um, and I think there are other websites that are following suit and also uh, the kind of Amazon models, both independent and larger chains. Mm. Um, but we do, of course, um, as alongside that, we absolutely cultivate relationships with independent booksellers and it is important. And for me, on a personal level, I I would always support an independent bookstore mm -hmm. if possible. In terms of the Egyptian market, uh, Amazon is relatively new arrival here. Okay, um, yeah, been for a few years. Um, but here we also we have our own bookstores in Egypt, so we have a kind of we have that advantage in the market. Um, and I think there's also less. We I mean we do actually sell online as well through the bookstores, but there's probably relative to you know Europe and the US there is uh, less of a culture of buying things online there's like mm -hmm. it's more of a kind of cash economy I think mm -hmm. yeah that's your question. that's what yeah that's what it's very yeah. different from the UAE in that way I think um just yeah but that's interesting um so um I'm hoping you can you can give us uh, a preview of one or two of Hupo's titles that we should all be reading. Maybe you you have particular Palestinian authors to recommend, or or anything yeah. on your list that speaks to the will to resistance, to um, courage in the face of of catastrophe, catastrophic violence that you would want our listeners to um, keep an eye out for. Um, okay. Well, I thought I could talk about. Um... Um, one of Ibrahim al Korni's books, or maybe I should start with actually, let me let me talk to you first about um, History of Ash by mm. Khadija Marwet. Um, so Khadija is a Moroccan human rights activist and academic. Um, this is her debut novel. Mm. Um, and it's very, in, very brief. It's a dual narrative of Moulin and Layla, the man and a woman. It tells their experience uh, in detention, um, in and out detention over a period of 20 years. Uh, it's an interesting juxtaposition of a male and female voice. Um, and it, it's set in the years of lead in Morocco, which is a kind of bleak historical period where there was, where political opposition was crushed, essentially. Um, and it's part of this a kind of a body of literature, a kind of wave of writing that started in the early 2000s about this period. And, and this book is a fictional account, but it draws, I think, quite on testimonies and memoirs of people who experienced uh, detention during this period. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it's it's about human brutality, but it's also about resilience and the power of the human spirit. And mm. uh, it's a novel, I think that it's, it's the themes are important and they resonate. Um, Sounds wonderful. <laughs> um, I could also talk about uh, Ibrahim Al-Khorni, um, so this one, Khadija's book, History of Ash, is, is out this, this fall. It's just come out. 
Um, but Ibrahim Alkoni's book, The Night Will Have Its Say, was published uh, last year. Uh, and we've already talked about Ibrahim Alkoni. He's obviously a very well-known Libyan writer. Um, and this is a retelling of the Muslim conquests mm -hmm. of North Africa. And it's told from the perspective of the conquered people, which is in itself quite an interesting and radical approach. Right. Um, El Kahina, who is a, a Berber warrior queen, and she leads the indigenous people in their resistance and initial victory. Um, it's written in his kind of deeply poetic, enchanting voice that's so characteristic of his writing. Um, it is arguably about kind of a quite obscure period of history, one that would be uh, probably entirely unfamiliar to an English audience, um, but the themes are urgent and they are important and they are, I think, quite timeless, actually. They are things like the futility of war um, mm -hmm. and the erosion, the destruction of indigenous culture. And I feel, mm -hmm. you know, could this be more important today when you see what's happening just across the border? Right. Um, so I feel that these, um, these themes continue to uh, be important and, and continue to have, yeah, as I said, they really resonate, I think. Mm. I, I've only read a little of Alconi's work, but but what I think of, there's a uh, an incredible sensitivity also to, to kind of um, the ecological or the human in relationship with the ecological, that those, that the, um, yeah. uh, the world of the desert as this, um, you know, spiritually inhabited as well as, um, you know, I, I just a deep relationship between be, between the humans who inhabit his his novelistic worlds and the um, and the uh, the non-human. Yeah, I agree. I think that this idea of the destruction of natural habitats as well is also, you know, an important theme and increasingly um, increasingly important with what's Relevant, happening. Yes. Yeah. 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 But he's, I mean, he's a very uni unique writer, um, obviously, you know, kind of literary fiction, historical fiction, but um, very unusual. And, you know, for, if you're looking for something, you know, a different voice, I mean, mm. he's a well-known writer. He's not a kind of a debut unknown novelist, but he is, his voice is, is very unique and interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I should mention his translator, Nancy Roberts, who's done an amazing job of translating him as well. Um quite an accomplishment yeah yeah where, where is she based uh I think she's she was in Jordan for a while I think she's in the states at the moment okay yeah. um I think you had one more author you wanted to speak about yes thank you um so I wanted to mention also Sahar Khalifa um who is also another quite well-known uh, writer she's a Palestine um has been quite widely translated um and we published recently one of her books called My First and Only Love, mm. uh, just my first love actually in Arabic in the original. Um, and it's the story of uh, Nidel uh, and it's set partly between uh, the Nakba, it's Nidel revisiting Palestine and revisiting her memories of Palestine before the Nakba. Um, it's looking back on her first love, her first love, a freedom fighter called Rabia um, and also it's about love for Palestine and the land and it's you know everything is very metaphorically charged and highly symbolic and um, you know 
I think it is important and urgent to read books like this at the moment, um, to understand the history of the struggle and the context of what's happening. Um, so often the news is devoid of any context. There's this idea that, oh, it's so complicated, we can't possibly include any history of what's happened when it's everything is complicated, everything is, all history is complicated, but there's no reason that this history is more complicated than theirs or should be cut off from current debate. Right, um, so right. That the conversation yeah. must begin at October 7th because everything before that is, you know, unspeakably impossible to understand. Yeah, it's a complete nightmare. We can never understand it when it's actually very simple what is happening. It's, um, it's you know, it started in the 40s and it's 75 years of a systematic process to remove the indigenous population. It's, um, you know, you can break it down and it can be quite simple. Um, but yeah, so uh, she's she's a wonderful writer, um, and a book that we highly recommend. Tell it's say the uh, the title of the novel one more time. It's my first and only love. My first and only love. Nadine, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, take care. Thank you. You too. Thank you.